For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Hannah. We, it seems like a, it's been a while. It's been two weeks, not just one. So uh, as by way of reminder, we are in our Hold Fast sermon series as we go through the book of Hebrews. And we're looking at Hebrews uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through 18 this morning. And we entered into this sermon series, hopefully to be reminded of who we are in Jesus and moreover, who Jesus is and what he means for us. It's very easy for us to have this kind of bumper sticker, Twitter tweeting kind of theology and response to the questions that are posed to us as Christians in this world, in this culture today. But we want to go deeper than that. We want to dive deep into who Jesus is and who we are in him. The theme, one of the themes that dominates Hebrews is good versus better. And the author of Hebrews is going back and looking at a number of things that we'll see. And he's still in the first kind of theme of Jesus is better than the angels. The angels were good. They brought the law. They um, help God's dominion. They serve God in various different ways. But Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And my question this morning for us is when we look at Jesus, when we look at who he is and what he has done, does the gospel strike us as good news? 
It's what it means. It comes from the word euangelion in the Greek, which literally means good news, good messengers, good message. But so much of the world would look at the gospel message that the church portrays today and would say, no, it is not good news. I think much of the church, when we go about acting in the way that we do our public reputation at this point in society, implies that the gospel is not good news either. Perhaps this is why we don't share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, with our friends, with our family, with our neighbors, with our co-workers, because maybe it's just not good news to us. See, I think a lot of what we are known for is our moral stance, our pride, our hypocritical nature, our nationalism, our judgment, and our self-righteousness um, that we have towards today's culture. It's really, we are just merely reflecting culture in a lot of the church today. This isn't a new thing, necessarily, but it's something that's really acute right now. Even the good things that the church does, the mission work, the, the relief, the caring for the sick and the poor and the homeless, isn't lifted up. It's not looked at because of how we are um, uh, holding ourselves, how we are functioning when um, we are faced with a society. We end up reflecting it a whole lot more than the gospel, a whole lot more than Jesus. The gospel is not good news because when we invite people to become Christians, oftentimes we're asking them to merely exchange the secular guilt that they carry around for religious guilt. The religious weight seems to weigh a whole lot heavier than the secular one as well. You should know better. This is not how Christians act. I think the reality, and to be honest about who we are and our need for Jesus, is much more um, real, is much more inviting, is much more attractive to those who do not yet know Jesus than showing everyone that we have and pretending, quite honestly, uh, that we have it all together. Maybe we should lead with that a little bit more. That's fine. You can do whatever. I wasn't going to pressure you. But now I have to turn every with all the way over here now, Jeff. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, appreciate, I appreciate your honesty. So, yeah, you want to lay on the couch? <laughs> honesty. Vulnerability. Transparency that we can have with those around us. Maybe we can start to do it here. Um, I remember as a kid in youth group that um, I, was, uh, I wasn't popular in school. I was popular in youth group, and I would try things out. Can I wear this? Can I act this way? Can I be this person here, a safe place for me, before I go out to school and wear these clothes or act this way or try to do this thing? Hopefully, the church, the table, can be one of those places that we can practice being real, being honest, and being vulnerable, though it is hard because of what we've experienced, the religious guilt that we have so often carried ourselves. The question is, still remains, what is the good news of the gospel? I think the author of Hebrews takes a very particular angle on the gospel here in our passage, and he says this about who Jesus is. 
This is the good news. Jesus shares in our humanity. He shares in our suffering. And he shares in our temptation. Jesus didn't stay away from the fray. He entered into it to share in our humanity, in our suffering, and in our temptation. Jesus shares in our humanity. I'm going to read, um, as I sometimes do, but I'm going to reread each section um, to, to, to draw it out a little bit more. Um, it's a big, it's a big, it's a very big passage. Um, so Jesus shares in our humanity, verses 5 through 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, and has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus shares in our humanity. This is a, um, a larger quote from Psalm 8, which he is referencing. And the interesting thing about uh, this Psalm 8 passage is that it was originally applied to humans, to humanity, that for a little while we, as humanity, were made a little lower than the angels. There's a lot of debate about what this, uh, you know, the original text and everything here, but we're looking at how the author applies it in this moment. He also says that everything is in subjection to Jesus as well. We don't quite see it yet, but it will come. That has actually applied to us as well. When we were created, we were given dominion over the plants of the field and the birds and the um, livestock as well, and yet. We don't always exercise dominion, do we? And then it says that he is crowned because of this. He is crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because he tasted death for everyone so that everyone could experience God's grace. This uh, is often referred to as Jesus' condescension, his leaving of heaven to come down and to be with us. Usually condescension is kind of used in kind of a negative tone here. And maybe it was a little bit for them as well. But it is Jesus leaving his heavenly home to come and be with his people, to be with us. This isn't patronizing, but it's compassion that he would have for us and with us, to experience life with us and to experience death for us. We went on a trip this week. Um, many of us traveled this week. Um, we like to make a distinction between trips and vacation. And uh, um, I, this seems to be a new thing lately. A trip for us is not something that's necessarily uh, relaxing. Um, we didn't plan the trip. Um, it was planned by my brother-in-law who loves to do all the things, and that's great for him. I love to do uh, nothing uh, when I'm on vacation. I love to have open, free space, and so this wasn't quite the most relaxing uh, trip for us. Uh, we left our home. We went to a, uh, a w wonderful resort in um, Virginia, uh, there was not a whole lot of information of what was going on there. We kind of had to discover it on our own each day and really 
ask the people. We had to enter into that space there. It was quite interesting. Um, but one, one of the things came up uh, for the 4th of July. I guess there's a law in Virginia that you cannot shoot things from the ground to the sky, i.e. fireworks, at any occasion. So we had to leave the premises, leave Virginia, leave the state to go to North Carolina uh, to find them. Uh, the nearest place was Mount Airy, um, and uh, it was uh, it was interesting. Uh, it was probably a town of somewhere around 10,000 people or so. Um, and so, you know, when you go to places, uh, go to like a county fair, and there's people that come in to go to the county fair, it was a lot of those people there. In fact, I think it was like primarily those people. Um, I think a term has been used, redneck. Um, and so it, was, it wasn't quite, it certainly wasn't the people uh, that were at Primland and it, uh, the resort that we were at. It's certainly not folks from Denver. Uh, it would be people from like Flagler, um, I'm guessing here. Uh, and so it was, it, was, uh, it was real different. And when we entered into the space, there was a wrestling ring uh, set up, and we were like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if that's there all the time, or if there's going to be, yes, surely there was amateur wrestling that took place while we were there. And it was one of those things like nobody was really paying attention, but it definitely caught our eyes. And I'm questioning, is this something we want our kids to be exposed to the whole time? I'm really wondering what is going on uh, at it. And it was all just uh, it wasn't just disconcerting, it was like discombobulating. Um, and uh, I stood in line for, uh, I put my order in and then waited for like an hour for ice cream for Michael and deep fried Oreos for myself. I'd never had them, I had to have some. Maybe you're sensing a lot of judgment in my story um, of what I've just told. And there is a lot. That was one of the disconcerting things when we got back to the resort was how much I was judging these people around me, um, who they were, what goes on in their lives, um, the, uh, the boredom I would have um, in a place like Mount Airy. I'm, I'm trying to keep it tamed down a little bit as well. There's a lot of things I'm not saying but we're all a little judgmental, aren't we? We don't want to be associated with those kinds of people, whether it's people from Mount Airy or it's people from Flagler or if it's people from you know more urban Denver or different spots of Denver or wherever we're from. We compare and we contrast ourselves with other people. We work harder. Some people have worked harder than us, and we haven't gotten as far as they have. They've been able to enjoy life's pleasures more. We've suffered more. And yet our life still seems so hard is both way for us to discount others' lives and struggles, but as well as our own when we're facing them. Well, I'm not struggling as much as that person. At least I have it better off than they do. Look at what I've been able to achieve on my own. But it's a way for us to kill them and to kill ourselves in the process. It's to kill the life that God's grace wants to produce in you and through you. Yet the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came and tasted death himself so that we could be released from this murderous judgmentalism. Grace murders judgment. It kills judgment because it reminds us that we did not earn our status with God, our place in this life, 
It was a gift. Mary and I were talking about this yesterday and um, our, our similar struggles of seeing our siblings go off and have better, better lives than us as we compare and judge. And um, Mary said, God finally spoke to her and said, what I've given you fits. Your life fits you. God is at work in each of our stories right now, right where we are. And we need to remove our lives, ourselves, from the ladder of comparison to ask God what He is doing in our lives. Instead of comparing ourselves to those around us, maybe it would be more helpful for us to remember what God has done in our lives uh, rather than um, just what it appears that He is doing and how He is blessing those around us. If we're constantly comparing ourselves to those to others, we will not be able to hold fast to the grace that God has for us. The gospel is good news because Jesus shares in our humanity, and in doing so, he brings God's grace to bear on our lives. This was no vacation for Jesus. He came to suffer, just shares in our suffering as well. Verses 10 through 13 is the start of that next paragraph there. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. The author of Hebrews loves to quote from the Old Testament. This is, these are quotes from Psalm 22 and Psalm 18 and Isaiah 8. And he's using these to make his point that Jesus came to be with us and not only with us to share in our humanity, but to share in our suffering as well. Here he points out that the, the creator of the world, by whom all things were made, becomes the redeemer for whom, uh, um, uh, by th- whom, who he, uh, let's find the actual words here, um, who sanctifies um, all, the, all those who come to him, and also for whom. So he's the beginning, the, the middle, and the end of creation as well. It is from whom we get our life, by whom we are saved, and to whom we are going as well. This happens because, as the author writes in verse 10, Jesus is the founder of our faith. This word also means the pioneer it is the one who brings salvation through suffering. He brought about um, their salvation here in verse 10, the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. I think this is why we say we follow Jesus, because he has gone ahead of us to show us what it's going to be like to live this life. Because he leads the way through suffering and death and into life. How does he do this? Suffering brings about our sanctification. Sanctification is one of those $5 seminary words that we love to use. It is the process by which we are made holy, the process by which we are transformed into the likeness of 
God. We are made perfect, the author writes. We have eternal purpose, which means we have an end, a goal to which we are going. Our suffering is not without hope because we have a pioneer, someone who has gone before us, and that person is Jesus. As our pioneer, Jesus is the one who sanctifies us with his grace in the midst of of our suffering. He is our compass. He is the guide. He is the one who orients us and paves the way. This is not like being a pioneer here in Colorado. Um, Many of you know Eugene, who's come and preached for us. He loves um, that he his family has a long history of of generations here in Colorado, and so he had bought a new truck and he went to the DMV and he said, "I want a Pioneer license plate," and he had all his documentation showing the generations that go back here, and they said, "That's fine, great, here you go, you know, whatever." And he's like, "Don't I have to show you all this paperwork of my family's legacy that has been here forever?" And they said, "No, anybody can come and get one," and. <laughs> I have very much thought about getting one myself, just to spite Eugene. This sanctification, this pioneer, is more like the refining of gold or silver. Do we have any metallurgists here? Anybody played with silver or gold? Um, I'm not one either. Um, maybe you've heard this, uh, an illustration like this before. Um, I didn't know what was involved in refining a precious metal, so I looked it up on WikiHow. Um, there's six parts to it, each with their own steps. Uh, part one, you melt the gold. You, you have a crucible, this, this device that can withstand this great amount of heat. Um, so you melt your, your precious metal in it. You add some acid to it. You add urea and, the, and a precipitant uh, as well. Uh, step four is you test the acid for the dissolved gold, and then you clean the gold in step five. And finally, in step six, you reconstitute the gold. You bring it all back together so it's purified and it's precious and it's beautiful and shiny. It's way more lovely and valuable than it was in the beginning. The way the metallurgist knows that the gold has been fully refined, or the whatever precious metal is fully refined, is that when he or she looks at it, they can see their own reflection in the metal. That is when the metallurgist knows that he has done. Jesus' process of sanctification is refining you, putting you through the crucible of suffering that is life until he sees his reflection in you. He's not judging you. It's not punishment is sanctification with his crucible of grace. See, we're not just judgmental towards others. We're self-righteous. That was what I walked away from or drove away from Mount Airy as well. We see ourselves better than others by what we have done. I, I'm not from here. I have to go that way to get back to my resort, to get back to my home where I belong. We're better than all the people who just have to go back to their homes here. We're trying to constantly earn our own salvation in this world to justify our existence. And often in the church, we continue to promote the self-righteousness that permeates our beings. You need to show your good works. You need to earn your place here. Self-righteousness can be says we can be good in and of ourselves. But Jesus says no one is good except God. So our goodness can only come from the one who can truly 
make us good, the one who can truly refine us with his fire of grace and mercy until we see, until he sees his reflection in us. Eugene Peterson says, Salvation marks God's action in Jesus Christ, whereby we're accepted just the way we are, and by which we're in the process of being made whole, repaired the ravages of sin, and restored to an original splendor. Through the process of sanctification, Jesus is repairing the ravages of sin and restoring you to your original splendor. This isn't your baby splendor when you come out of the womb. It's not your youthful appearance that you once had. It's the splendor at which God originally designed you with at creation, free from sin, free from judgment, free from self-righteousness, relying on the one who created, sustains, and wants to be with you eternally as well. See, you don't have to clean up before coming to Jesus. He cleans you up. He is not ashamed of you. All the quotations at the end is how he is saying, you are my family. You are God's, you are Jesus's brothers and sisters who he invites into his family. The New International Version translates this verse, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. You and your status comes from Jesus alone. By being in relationship with Jesus, he gets to work on you, to make you holy, to give you an eternal purpose, to transform you into his likeness, and to give purpose to your suffering. The gospel is good news because Jesus shares in our suffering, and he can do this because he shares in our temptation as well. That last paragraph there, verses 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that they might become a, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered when tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted this is like an extremely dense paragraph we could spend probably a couple of weeks here the author tells us that Jesus purpose was to come and destroy the devil and his power, which is namely sin and death. This might destroy him, is the Greek word katargeo, um, when it refers to the devil, and it's to b- deprive something of its power, to take that away from them, to destroy them. Our baptismal vows, um, which I went back and looked, um, we did not use uh, with uh, Teddy uh, when he was baptized, but we will be using them going forward, is that we would renounce the devil, death, and his powers. It's a statement that he no longer has power over us. And to give freedom, Jesus gives us freedom to those held in slavery through the fear of death by the power of sin 
How does Jesus free us from the power of sin? He became a high priest for us. He entered into humanity. He suffered. He was tempted so that he could walk alongside us and make a way for us, not just our pioneer, but our priest as well. He's merciful. He's faithful. He knows what we face in our life. To make propitiation for our sin. Propitiation is a $10 seminary word uh, that sums up a lot of things. Um, Sin One is the act or the power that separates us from God. So there's two definitions of sin. One is the acts of things that we do or don't do, which is a part of our confession every week. Those things that we have done or the things that we have not, that we have left undone, those are acts of sin. We do those because of the power that sin holds over us, which we have to be freed from. How does that happen? Well, there's two kinds of sacrifice, and here he is referring to propitiation. One is a sacrifice of propitiation. The other is expiation. Expiation is where the priest lays his hands on the lamb, and then they send it out from the camp that the sin would go away from the people of God. The other one is propitiation, where the lamb of God is taken to the altar itself, and it is um, killed, and the blood runs out, and they sprinkle it over the altar, uh, showing forth the, um, the, the repairing of the gap that has been made, the suffering and death that has to come. And here the author of the pre- um, and the high priest does this once a year on the Day of Atonement. And here the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is both the high priest who enacts this and the sacrifice, the lamb that was slain on the altar, the one who is the sacrifice and the one who is interceding for us. This has happened because Jesus was tempted and he can help those who face temptation in their lives as well. Specifically, we see uh, three temptations that Jesus faced. Uh, Those are listed out in Matthew 4 as well as um, uh, in Luke as well. The devil comes and finds him after 40 days of fasting and being in the wilderness. And the first thing he says is, hey, you're you're hungry. Why don't you turn these stones into bread? The second one is, uh, he says, "Um, hey, uh, why don't you throw yourself off the Temple Mount? God will surely save you. And the third temptation is to worship the devil, to have status for himself. The bread is this consumption. Testing God is the security that we have. And worship is having status on our own. I think these can easily sum up the majority of temptations that we face in our own lives. Lust is an overconsuming of things. Greed is that as well, but it's also finding our security in something other than God. Worshiping something else is having power. Usually we worship our own selves, but to have power um, that is outside or is that is different than the way that God uses power himself. Consumption, security, and status. Temptations, as Jeff and I were talking uh, during, the, or during the, the passing of the peace, at the core is when we say we're going to do it our own way. We're not going to look to God and be dependent on Him to provide life for us. We're going to figure it out on our own. We're not getting it from God, maybe, what we want of life, so we have to go get it ourselves. When the author of the Hebrews says Jesus is both the priest and the sacrifice, he is telling us that God provides all that we need in Him.
I love the the movie and the book uh, Les Mis, Les Miserables. Not the Hugh Jackman one. That one's dumb. But the Liam Neeson one, the original one, the good one. And specifically the scene where he is caught, Jean Valjean, is caught and brought back to the bishop's house after he has stolen the, the silver spoons and the silverware and everything. And um, the, priest, the, the, the police officers bring him back in and uh, they say, you know, we've caught him with all your silver. And, and the, the bishop says, and the, the woman that's with him is like, oh, I'm so glad you brought him back. She's very dramatic about it. And the priest, the bishop says, I'm so angry with you, Jean Valjean. So didn't I tell you take everything? You didn't take the candlesticks. Those are of more value than even what you took. Those are 2,000 francs apiece anyway on their own. He, after he does this, after being attacked by Jean Valjean and being struck and falling down, he still has the bruise over his eye, and he sends the guards off to uh, have some a little bit of wine with his um, with his female friend, I don't remember her relationship, but uh, with her female friend, and he looks Jean Valjean in the eyes. It's a very dramatic scene. It's a turning point in his life. He says, now don't forget, the priest says to Jean Valjean, don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I've bought your soul. I ransomed you from fear and hatred, and now I give you back to God. This is Jesus sharing in our temptation. This is Jesus being the high priest, the sacrifice, and the one who intercedes for us. But temptation always is there to go back to our own ways, to do things in our own ways and how we've done it before. But the freedom that Jesus gives you is to admit your need of him, to go to Jesus and to admit it to those around us as well. We no longer have to judge others. We no longer have to be self-righteous. We no longer have to face temptations alone. Jesus, as our pioneer of faith, came to us so that we could go to him. When we face the temptation to do things on our own, we go to Jesus. When we feel the need to fight for our own reputation, we can go to Jesus. When we feel the need to enact retribution, we go to Jesus. When we need rest, we go to Jesus. When we can't do it on our own any longer, we go to Jesus. Jesus came to us so that we could go to him. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to us to enter our humanity, to suffer with us, to know our temptations, and to pave the way through this life to bring us to glory with him. We don't need to clean ourselves up. He does that. We don't need to tell others to clean them up. That's the good news of the gospel. We share the gospel because God's grace alone is the only way we are free from sin and death. Let's pray. Father, we get it so wrong sometimes. We want to clean up. We want to put on our Sunday best. We want to come to you suit and tie, all spick and span, ready to go. And yet you tell us that that is self-righteousness, that is judgment that we are bringing on our own, onto ourselves. And so we come to you wholeheartedly,
with all that we have, with all who we are, for you to clean us up, for you to make us holy, for you to bring us into your family, for you to be able to provide the way, to pioneer the way, to pave the path through the temptations and suffering of life, knowing that you hold us in your hand. You pave the way by being the priest and the sacrifice. Help us to hold fast to you, to your grace, to your mercy, and pour it out upon us, Lord. We need it so deeply in our lives. We pray these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.